Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. Thank you for joining us. This week, I was joined by Joy Robbins. Joy is the CRO of The Washington Post. We talk about everything from balancing a subscription business with an ad business to the problems with the RFP and why news publishers hate block lists. Hope you enjoy the episode. Joy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. So you are eight months in now. Just about. you had spent six years at mm-hmm. Quartz. Yeah, yep. Completely much larger organization. Yes, absolutely. Into, absolutely. Right? absolutely. Explain that transition. So I think coming from a place like Quartz, uh, which, you know, was this uh, example of a new publication created for the time in which it was launched, um, to the post which has... The balance of both this incredible rich heritage of brand and audience, but also I think has the spirit of a startup. Um, And I think that's why for me, thinking about leaving somewhere that I had helped essentially build, the opportunity to go into something like that with loyalty at scale, but still this relentless spirit for innovation um, felt like an incredible next step. Okay, so in the first eight months, you, you reorganized the sales team. And this is something it's we don't recent. usually mm-hmm. talk about, mm-hmm. but like want to go into some depths about um, explain what you did the first six months before yeah. and, and to figure out how you want to be organized for success. Yeah. Um, so I spent my first six months, and it sounds sort of cliche, but just listening. Um, I talked a lot with our internal teams, but probably more importantly, I talked to our customers, um, our both existing customers and, and our potential uh, customers, and really started to understand, okay, the, the Post has several teams uh, assigned to um, the market. One sits in D.C. and is our retail and regional market, really focused on that local market, looking after brands who are just trying to reach Washingtonians. But we have a Uh, division that has grown exponentially as we've become over 90 million uniques in the U.S. now and 25 million internationally, working with what we call the global brand team. Um, And that team had been organized by ad agency. So ultimately, you were assigned an agency, and all of the clients that fell underneath that agency were essentially your responsibility. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it it was working tremendously well. I think that, you know, you've seen that through uh, the growth that the Post has experienced. However, I think what we all are starting to see is that um, in a lot of ways, A, the importance of understanding a client's business is 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 paramount, um, you know, for both our agency partners as well as ourselves. We need to better understand their business, better understand how they make money. Um, mm-hmm. And in another but respect... you can't piss the agencies off by going around. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and, <laughs> and I think, like, that's never part of the thinking. It really has to come down to how do you actually make the agency your partner um, in ultimately serving the brand. On the other side of things, you start to see more and more that the agencies represent their own business model. They are facing their own challenges. They are facing their own method or of disruption. So how do we stop looking at these ad agencies as essentially, you know, the purveyors of the RFP, which, by the way, I have my mm. own – I think the RFP process is, is – has been broken a long time, but probably no, never, never, never more than right now. But, but how do we also then start to think about what I think the platforms have done a really, really good job at is is thinking about the ad agencies and how we can add value there as well. So explain that for, for those unfamiliar with how um, the platforms have organized their sales efforts. Sure. So I think, I mean, I don't, years and years now, a lot of the platforms have had these agency development teams um, that have been working directly with 
uh, the higher levels and in the teams within the agencies to really understand how to both utilize their platforms, best leverage their platforms, as well as provide value to those agencies, particularly when it comes to some sort of unique capability or partnership that they might have. Um, so, you know, that may seem intuitive when you think about, okay, agencies are going to have to buy the platforms. Um, ultimately, aren't they just f helping them figure out how to do that most effectively? Perhaps. But for a brand like The Post, what I see the opportunity as uh, is we are constantly innovating uh, both in our product as well as in our editorial. We mm -hmm. have a user lab down in D.C. where we're constantly, you know, looking at uh, user behavior, reader behavior, creating insights. And and to me, that ability to leverage that in a in a in a particular way or or think about um, you know different ways that the post and a particularly agency group or holding company can actually uh, add unique value is is an opportunity for the agency. So so ultimately the way that we have organized since October 1st essentially is we've created a group who are our client partner teams and our agency partner teams. And the client partner teams are responsible for owning the relationship at the client level all the way through to the agency team focused on that client. And our agency partners will be tasked with um, really working with the senior level executives at holding companies and ad agencies to understand, you know, what are their pain points? What are the things that their clients are tasking them with? Mm -hmm. um, and how can we ultimately partner to create something that adds value to their so business. So you want to have a relationship with the at the advertiser level yes, whenever possible. Absolutely. I, I, it's, it's critical. I think as much as, you know, it's funny, I always thought uh, coming from a brand that was perhaps not as well known like Quartz and before even that, the BBC, which believe it or not, was not as well known in the U.S. Um, I always thought just visibility and, and familiarity was something that was really um kind of hardest to overcome when it came to the clients directly. But even a brand like the Washington Post, who, you know, is, is not well-known, there's still an importance of educating at the brand level um, as to, you know, what our capabilities are, what are the audience, uh, how can we actually help um, these marketers uniquely reach their um, their targets. Mm -hmm. Give me your uh, beef with the RFP. Huh. Um, so I think the RFP probably worked when people were just buying holes on pages yeah. and you could tell somebody the audience that you're targeting and the ultimate sizes of the creatives. But as things have... So for be well, the people that don't know, give us an example of what an RFP is like. <sighs> well, it could range everything from like eight pages of just trying to say that they want something out of the box and never been done before to <laughs> at reach scale. at scale. Exactly. <laughs> but but also with uh, never been done before, but with uh, clear um, ROI yeah. uh, uh, capabilities. Um, so, you know, it comes down to defining a target audience, um, stating an objective of the ad, of the brand, which, you know, in three sentences or less, um, and uh, some of the creative tactics that an agency will expect. And, and every once in a while, you even understand how you might be evaluated uh, mm -hmm. in terms of your submission. But as the marketing uh, journey and, and as what clients really expect has become more sophisticated and complex, the way that you are actually going to be able to RFP for something like content or, you know, data um, or insights is just, it, it requires an in-person conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and often I think what's most troubling about the RFP is 
it will ask you for a 24 or 48 hour turnaround time, which and you and also your best, most ambitious ideas at your most aggressive, efficient pricing. And so you effectively are, you know, adding to the human capital required at any media company to really like as those scale, as you have 400, 500, 600, 800 RFPs, if your close rate doesn't Mm -hmm. actually go up with those RFPs, you're essentially just adding human capital to like a a game of like loss. And then you can get ghosted too. No, well, you never know if you're actually just an idea factory, right? Right. So, I mean, when you don't get feedback, but then you ultimately see, you know, your idea pop up in some program on another publisher, you're like, wow. Hmm. Coincidence, Mm -hmm. surely. Um, All this move to automation Mm -hmm. should, I mean, it it should change the nature of a sales force. Explain what automation can and still cannot do. Yeah. I mean, because a lot of advertising is becoming automated to some degree, yet at the same time, the sort of doomsday mm. um, proclamations that the, you know, it's going to eliminate all the people, yeah. it doesn't seem like it's happened. No, and I think that that's, I think one of the things that we're really focused on right now is understanding what is best left to automation and what does a direct relationship still necessitate. So in terms of just strictly buying audience-based targeting, that is best left up to something automated. Um, yeah. And it's very much why, you know, we are also getting into that game with uh, with Zeus Prime and some of the things that, um, you know, can, can potentially mm-hmm. compete against the platforms. But that's outside platforms. your group. That, no, Zeus no. Prime is in my group. Zeus is mm-hmm. in your group. Yes. Okay. Yep. But, um, but I think it also is something where we need to decide what we're going to spend our time and, like, attention and talent on. And ultimately, figuring out how to sell just banners with audience uh, targeting attached to that, that's something that I think, if, and if that's all a brand wants um, and it's transactional, that can be left up to the machine. Mm-hmm. But the thing that brands like the Washington Post really have to offer um, and that are differentiated are our relationships with our users and their insights that are coming from those. So how do we, you know, what is the unique insight that we can give to a brand uh, that, that helps under, them understand, you know, what, audiences care about, what they value, how to actually create utility when it comes to that relationship. Um, And that's where I think like the bigger partnerships um, that I'm really excited for our team to focus on can. Mm -hmm. can, can So how does that change the the type of salesperson that you end up bringing in? Yeah, it's going to sound trite, but the consultative. um, So what does that mean? Everyone always says that. I know. It it, it does. It it probably gets thrown around a lot. It means, first of all, it means somebody that's passionate and gives a crap about what the other person uh, across the table for them cares about. I mean, if it's all about, if your entire reason for being is just to go in and like, talk about some of the things that you have to sell and close a deal. Um, That is not something I think that will get rewarded by the the value exchange. That You got to actually know your client's business. You have to know your client's business. (laughs) You actually have to not only, you know, sell a program, but then recognize that the real work starts once, you know, the, the program begins because it's, you know, I think one of the things that one of the bumps in the road that publishing hit was everybody was thought that native and content was going to save uh, the industry um, f- against automation, right? Yeah. So everybody got really excited when you could sell six, seven figure deals based on reams and reams of just original content. But at that uh, transaction, everyone forgot that they had to perform or there had to be extremely good customer service and project management 
or we end up kind of where we are now, it, those deals had been really hard to renew. So explain that a little bit more, because uh, we had uh, Josh uh, Stinchcomb was mm. in here, mm-hmm. and he was talking about the, the very same thing, that publishers yeah. historically are not really good at mm. that Yeah, part. yeah. And, and I will say, I think, to me, and, and this comes back from even when, when I was uh, at courts, like, performance is probably as important as process. And process sometimes outweighs performance because if you uh, sell in a big complex program to a client but your project management is crap, um, it ultimately, the clients haven't actually grown their capacity or how many people are on their side to help manage these programs, right? You have a lot of clients now who are sitting there saying, great, we are doing bigger programs than ever before, but it's not like I got more headcount to support that. So mm-hmm. ultimately, um, you know, in the best cases, they ha- they have ad agencies who help them manage that, but a lot of it ends up hitting them directly because it's so reliant on, you know, their content or their insights. So the ability to just, a lot of publishers, I think, spend a lot of time setting up big great creative teams for the pre-sale process, but really skimped on the project management team. And that's felt. And you have conversations with clients all the time who talk about just, you know, having PTSD from the execution of a program. And you see it when it, you know, you can tell that it took 15 to 18 months between like someone announcing a big program and you ever seeing that end up on the web because it is time intensive. And if there isn't a team that is focused on essentially the success of this program, it all feels like a big waste mm-hmm. of time. Um, but that means more people. Yeah. And lower margins. I think that that's where it comes down to where are you focusing your your people? Because for the things that can become automated and should become automated, let that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and and focus that talent on project management. Okay. So you got to learn some from agencies. I mean, agencies have been in this business for a while. Exactly. exactly. And you also can't rely on it as your only mechanism for revenue. I think, you know, the idea of something like content, and I think you saw this happening. So for a little while, you saw a few publishers talking about how they are not only going to create studios, but those studios are going to be ad agencies. They are going to be creative agencies. And you've seen that get walked back. Um, I think probably because this idea that, you know, you want to create a consultative agency, um, those agencies don't tend to be the most profitable things. I mean, there's... (laughs) People in the agency business. Exactly. It reminds me of when... um, I don't know if you remember when when Google started, hired a couple of people from Ogilvy originally, mm-hmm. and people were like, "Oh no, Google's yeah, coming, coming for the for ad us, yeah. agency business." Mm-hmm. And I remember talking with an ad agency CEO. He was like, "What? Seriously?" He goes, "They can have it. I'll take their exactly. I'll take their search engine. Totally, uh, much better business." Yeah, I mean, and that's why I think you know we uh, the Post also look at our you know diversification of revenue to include reader revenue to include advertising and within that you know custom studio revenue um, but then also uh, SaaS products mm-hmm. like our arc business um, or or most recently Zeus quick break to hear from our sponsor so how much more complicated is that now being in I mean first the post is much larger than quartz but mm-hmm. At the time you left Quartz, I mean, memberships are a much bigger part of it right now, but it was mostly an advertising Oh, business, yeah, for sure. Right? Um, this is a, I mean, I guess, good case in that there's mm-hmm. a bunch of different revenue streams at The Post, and The Post is it's one of the forerunners of embracing mm-hmm. subscriptions. Yeah. Um, yeah. How does that impact 
the ad strategy? Yeah, I think it strengthens it. Um, I think that, you know, there's always skepticism um, when you're outside the walls to say, come on, you guys must. there, There has to be a finger on the scale of like reader revenue or advertising because they can't coexist. And that was one of the main messages that was really important to me going into the post. It's like, it can't be an or strategy. This has to be and. And the reason that I think um, actually having an exceptionally successful subscription business helps us is that it does create that, as I talked about before, loyalty at scale, which is good for brands. Brands want to understand, you know, they want an engaged audience. Mm-hmm. Having an engaged audience, having a logged in audience gives you um, uh, access to first party data, which we all know is going to be increasingly important as we hit 2020. So I think it, it gives us... so. It gives us a lot more conversations around ensuring reader experience is best in class. Explain why. Because you want to treat your most loyal readers more respectfully, uh, (laughs) right? So you don't want to give them terrible ad experiences. You want to make sure that you're really carefully thinking through what does um, a subscriber, because our subscribers are generating. They get the same ad experience as non-subscribers. There there are some differences. um, And we're actually looking at how to continue to evolve that even further. And I think the question becomes, you know, do you want to give only your subscribers the best experience or, you know, your prospective subscribers as well? And how do you balance that? Because you don't want to just treat your subscribers uh, with like the most beautiful ad experience and then everybody else right. just kind of, you know, because you, you, you want to be, obviously, you want everyone to be a prospective subscriber. So you don't, you want to give them a taste of what that um, experience will be. But we, we definitely uh, think, especially, you know, while we are not an Amazon company, Jeff, obviously, uh, his... You were his, using air quotes. I need to tell everyone when <laughs> oh, guests so, are using air quotes. So, sorry. Thank you. Um, so, uh, and what I mean by that is we are not part of the Amazon family. Our owner is Jeff Bezos. Um, but, you know, obviously, he, the, the, am, the expectation of the Amazon experience is incredibly high. And, and, and his philosophy, which obviously goes into uh, us at The Post, is, you know, treat your, your subscribers, treat your customers um, uh, to the best experience as possible. So, um, you know, that's something that is really looked at carefully when we're weighing things like, you know, how to drive increased revenue per page view. I don't know if you have any experience, but I mean, what is what what has Jeff Bezos said about like the overall ad experience? Maybe not on the post, but just in general. I'm always interested in how people from, I mean, you know, look, he's someone at at, at some point of mm. of his career had said that advertising is an admission of failure <laughs> um, of a product. Um, since then, Amazon's become a gigantic mm. advertiser, so yeah. um, that's okay. Everyone evolves, um, but I'm interested in just in 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 an outside perspective of someone yeah. of his breadth. He really, um, while we have uh, conversations with him um, just about every two weeks, those usually like lie within the. Uh, technology product subscriber relationship. We don't talk a mm-hmm. ton about advertising, um, perhaps either surprisingly or unsurprisingly. Um, but I think that it the philosophy remains like don't mess up your can't slow down the site. Yeah, it can, Cannot and, and and I think okay. like you can see that through some of the technologies that we've built. Like we built um Through our research, engineering, and development team, our red team, um, one of the most performance sites. Uh, We have a wrapper um, that is a, uh, it's called Zeus, and it ultimately loads the site and adds um, 
incredibly fast, ultimately, you know, really thinking about that, that user experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so it, talk to me a little bit about, um, you mentioned before about subscriptions not working in opposition. Yeah. How can they work together, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to the first party data? Mm-hmm. So I would say perhaps not as specific as like what you'd think of like regular first party data in terms of people, you know, uh, allowing us to have more data on them. But I think uh, it it comes down to providing value. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think in the best of cases, we find places where um, both driving subscribers plus giving an advertiser opportunity to look at, be looked at as kind of um, providing that experience um, as, as like the best result possible. So for instance, we launched a new vertical, actually two new verticals over the last, over the period of time that I've been here. The first one was By the Way, which is a travel vertical um, focused on authentic travel. And the second is a uh, vertical called Launcher, which actually focuses on esports. Um, and both of those have been incredibly successful when you look at it from a reader perspective, but were funded by brands. Um, and so we want to continue to find places where uh, we know things about either our current or prospective subscribers in terms of what they want from a product and technology standpoint or from a content standpoint, and how can we then help find um, a brand to, to help provide that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is sort of where I think the two can play together. Um, when it comes to thinking about uh, first-party data, I mean, when you have reoccurring visitors, you start to really understand what um, a reader's expectation or what their behavior says about the type of content they, they prefer or the type of format they prefer. And the way that we work with brands and um, toward that is – if we know the subscribers coming in and they tend to favor video or they tend to favor infographics, the way that we present either content or um, potential um, uh, ad formats or, or something to get them into the the uh, content experience happens to be in the format that they would prefer. So when you're depend when you're too dependent on kind of the the flyby traffic that is just produced from people happening upon your yeah. your site instead of people who are coming day in and day out and are loyalists, um, you know, it's it's much harder to capture that. But when you when you see these readers um, and you can anticipate their expectations, it it helps provide that real wealth of insights. Right, we're in the the key Q four um, time period, and impeachment is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, it is gonna it's gonna happen uh, right around the holidays. It looks like. Um, this is going to lead to a flood of traffic. Yeah, um, are you seeing are you seeing advertisers who say, "Keep me away from the impeachment stuff"? I mean, I think it's it's not only impeachment. I think that there is an allergy to politics in general in many cases, and I think that can't I mean, be good for business. Well, I think it's <laughs> I think it's a bit. Um, I think brand safety, right, which is the thing that we're all talking about right now, especially among the news publishers, I think it's been misconstrued in this way from 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 what actually was meant to be keep brand safe. Yeah, wasn't keep them away from disasters. Like, like no beheading video. Yeah, Don't put my ex- right, exactly. brand on a beheading truly, video. Truly, truly, truly not suitable for brands. Yeah. Um, or, or, you know, thinking about uh, brand safety in the face of things like ad fraud. Brand safety has become this blanket 
that basically okay. sits across every single anti-keyword targeting list that has become, in some cases, two to 3,000 words long. Um, and I think we've all, and I think even advertisers are starting to see how paralyzing this is. You saw Bank of America just announced that, you know, they are taking steps to um, increase their own capabilities or, or you know, um, position within this brand safety. Because ultimately, all this brand safety or all these keyword block lists are going to do is just end up putting advertisers who want to reach a B2B audience or the sophisticated audiences that are the news consumers and like put them in places that are sports and entertainment, which, you know, isn't necessarily the type of alignment that they're looking for. So instead of focusing on brand safety, I think the conversation has to so to turn into this idea of brand suitability. How can we help brands appear in environments that are more um, uh, closely aligned to their messaging while keeping them away from mm -hmm. things that truly are brand safe? So we have... Well, for a lot of them, they just yeah. want to stay away from politics, right? I think and I think so, but I it... it but there's a difference between politics and policy coverage. Okay. And I think they get blended together. So politics and and I think even when you think about what they want to stay away from from the politics, they want to stay away from the type of incendiary, you know, salacious reporting that is basically, you know, looking at um, exposés or, or something that is uh, – you know, you don't necessarily want to be around because it's it's ultimately just driving conversation in, in a direction that they, they don't want to associate with. But when it comes to policies, that's that's absolutely where a lot of them want to be, especially in a world where brands are, are being pushed to stand for something and consumers really want to understand um, what they believe in. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that, um, you know, we are really focused on helping brands understand is how to appear in some of those places that may or they may have considered as as non-safe. So if you're going to appear on the front page of the Washington Post or you're going to help support journalism that ultimately drives democracy, like how do you do that in a way? How do you turn up? So you can't be tone deaf. You can't, you know, appear against um, issue type of um, uh, of content with like a totally tone deaf ad, but is there a way that we can help our readers understand that these are the brands who are helping to support the really critical, sophisticated, consequential journalism yes. that that like ultimately matters to to this country? Although sometimes that coverage can elicit emotions, both <laughs> positive and negative, <laughs> that might not be, make them um, you know amenable to a commercial message. Well, but that's like. To me, and this is what one of the things that we really want to focus on with our user lab, like what are the types of messages that consumers expect to have? If they understand, if the, it's accepted that advertising is a critical part of the lifeblood of, of publishing and of, of, of news, right? What is the right way for a brand to turn up? Like what type of messaging does feel more like native or, or additive or acceptable in, in a space? Okay. Could be like impeachment 2019 brought to you by oh, Bank of America. That is not happening. <laughs> Lou, let's make it happen. I, oh God. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Joy. Thank you, Brian. And thank you all for listening. As always, uh, want you to subscribe to Digiday Plus. If you go to digiday.com slash subscribe, you can sign up there. This gives you unlimited access to all of our content, exclusive research, and much, much more. You will be getting a 20% discount if you use podcast at checkout. That is podcast at checkout. 
Also, remember to rate and review this podcast at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps it be discovered, supposedly. And thank you to Pierre Bienname, who is our producer. <laughs>